This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Hornswording. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've made some exciting new changes to our mead range, and in particular, our Yorkshire mead. So what we've done is we've completely rebranded, relabeled, and we've also added a couple of new flavours. Now, before I tell you about the new flavours, I want to tell you a little bit about the mead production, because this stuff is really something special. It's made at a micro meadery just on the outskirts of York, and it's run by a fellow called Pete Allenson, and this guy does everything himself. He keeps the bees, he sustainably harvests the honey from his own bees, he then ferments the honey to make the mead, he bottles the mead, he labels the mead, he sends it out to us, I mean this guy does everything and, and mead is what he does and that's part of why I think this stuff is so amazing because it has such a short journey from production to bottling to end user um, and I think it really is a special product. So we have our three traditional ones that you might have seen on the website before which are mead of Serenos, our mead of Brigid and our mead of Morrigan. The Morrigan is an elderberry, the Serenos is a heather honey and the mead of Brigid is a traditional. Now on top of that, what we've done is we've added a spice mead, which is Surtur's mead. We have Loki's Curse, which is a pineapple and coconut mead. And then we also have Tia's Sacrifice, which is a whiskey and cherry mead. And I mean, that stuff is absolutely beautiful. All these meads are available in 75 cl bottles and a 25 cl bottle, so you can sort of pick your size. On the website, we also pair it in a gift set where you get a 25 cl bottle and a small drinking horn. Perfect for gifting or a little treat for yourself even. Even if you don't like mead, just it's worth going and looking at this stuff just for the artwork and for the bottles. Saxon Storyteller has done the artwork and I mean, he's absolutely nailed it with these. The, the labels look beautiful and I'm really proud of it. I'm sure you can tell. So just pop over to the website, hornsofodin.com. You get 10% off for listening to the show with the discount code HORNS10. So you should pop that in at checkout so you're going to get 10% off your order, Horns 10, and honestly, just try this stuff out. It really is, I think, the best mead available. Right, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everybody. Uh, this time, we're joined by Rich Blackett, who is the chair of the Ausatrue UK organization, which is a, a new pagan Ausatrue organization. We will get into what that means in a bit. But first, I'll just give the mic to Dan, who uh, has been... <laughs> who really wants to give us a rant here <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a rant slash public service announcement i think for uh for our listeners or at least anybody who's been on the website and bought anything um for the last three weeks i kind of lost control of the website i don't know how i don't know what happened but all the so, so the two websites horns and non-mythology podcast linked back to my personal email through shopify and then one day I went on and it was just Horns of Odin that was there and the Nordic Mythology Podcast one disappeared. Um, so I couldn't log in. I couldn't do anything. Didn't recognize my email. So, the, but the website was still up. It was still hosted by Shopify. You could still use it. You could still buy things. Um, but I just had, it was as if it wasn't recognized. So I rang Shopify, spoke to them. They said they'd investigate. And then three weeks later, they sent me uh, an email saying, can you please send us some ID and we can give you access back. I never told me anything why, I never said anything about what happened. So it was more just if anybody's ordered anything in the last few weeks and you haven't got it, that's why. 
But now that I do have access back, I will be getting on top of it, top of it, and getting everything sent out. But yeah, it was a little bit, a little bit frustrating. I'm not really sure what happened, um, but I wasn't best impressed. That does sound quite annoying. <laughs> Someone just said in the chat that the New Age Vikings did it, which it could be for all the for all the trolling that I do on the. Uh, What's the that? What's the New Age Vikings? Oh, it's a Facebook group that I like to regularly <laughs> go in and you know see what's happening. I'm glad you're having fun. <laughs> I, you, know, you know, I do. So yeah, no, I just wanted to let people know that we haven't forgotten about you. It's it's been a whole thing that I've just been waiting way to get sorted and thankfully it is now so we can get things uh things done so yeah so so rich thank you for thank you for joining us sorry for just having to put that out there um how are you it's nice to see a, a fellow brit again pleased to be on the podcast of course um i think it was matthias mentioned before that i'm chair of astra uk or austro uk if you want to be precise about the linguistics there which i should say obviously in europe and the UK, Austria has a sort of a sort of fairly benign connotation, whereas in America, uh, when you mention anything Austria or Austria, it tends to have a negative association. So it's quite a different sort of meaning depending upon where you are in the world. Um, so our group is inclusive, and we've been around since about 2013. I think we're up to 3,000 members on the Facebook group and various other paying members, patron members, and that sort of thing. Put up various books and things. Um, I think we republished the first ever sort of parallel translation of or translations of the Havamal. Uh, and notably, various other groups have now done the same, but uh, I won't name them, but uh, we were first. Of course, ours is it's notable because it also includes a little essay at the beginning to give a bit of context on what the Havamal is, because I think a lot of people just read it and don't understand where it's from, what it means, and various other sort of interpretations of it without getting too nerdy, but yeah. Uh, I could talk about the Havamal all day, but uh, so there's the various different people's interpretations. Is it the words of Odin, or is it just a bunch of sayings translated from a Latin, you know, to, and, and everything, all the other in, in opinions in between, really? But I mean, it's also an incredibly important text for a lot of heathen out, out there, if you, Absolutely, if you yeah. ask me. Right? Um, what I find a little unfortunate sometimes is that people seem to tend to just want to mine it for, for the useful everyday stuff. And then forget about all the, the the funky shit that that we got into with our reading. Weird, and wonderful stuff in there. In fact, I've got so many different translations of it because my interest in the Havamal. Well, we're going off topic here, but my interest in the Havamal stems from I heard a particular quote from it, and I've not been able to track down which translation it's from. You can find this particular quote all over the internet, but with no citation as to which translation it's from. And it's used on this particular heavy metal album from the 80s, which is where I first heard it. It was a decade later. I go, oh, that's that's an Havamal. But that's a kind of a weird, odd translation. And I've yet to try, every heathen group I've asked in, people say, well, that's a terrible translation. Well, that's fine, but I want to know where it's from. And I've yet to find out. Um, the album is uh, Dreamweaver by Sabbat, which is based on a particular um, sort of heathen fiction novel. Uh, which are called uh, The Way of Weird by Brian Bates, which is, I guess, accuracy is, it's a fiction novel, so don't, you don't go to that, but it was hugely influential in getting people interested in heathenry at a time when there was virtually nothing out there. It's right. Still in print if you're into that kind of thing, but, uh, and it's an intersexual quoted at the very beginning of the album. Um, and I've, I've still, I've, you know, it's been, what, 
six, seven, eight years, and I still never found out where that particular specific translation is from. I managed to track it. The line is, the line is, um, I think it's verse 141 or 139, depending upon your translation. I think it's something if like... Matthias knows this. I, I'll, oh, I'll be thrilled. Leave, if, if I'm going to leave the podcast. If he, <laughs> if he knows he it, knows I, I, I will be thrilled because I've been trying to, I've been asking on every heathen group, academic group I've joined, I ask, and everybody goes, no idea. So the line is something like, um, well be in thy one and wisdom too, and grew and joyed in my growth which is kind of a really bizarre linguistic version of saying, I, what it should be saying is I became fruitful and wise. That's the better translation of the same verse. But it's, right. but, but well-being I won, which is a really strange way of, is it somebody trying to sound old-timey? I don't know. But I've, I've, you can search the internet, you'll find it on new age groups and all kinds of different places, but you will not find a citation as to which translation it's from. Oh, that's so interesting. I wonder if they had somebody do it for them. Well, I don't think it's from the album. I don't think it's from the okay. album because I, I I asked on one group and somebody found a reference in a Google Books book uh, or something uh, from the 1970s. Okay. So whether they were translating it, whether they got it from another... My suspicion is that it was some person, some kind of, you know, as... as a, to be an academic in the, in the early 20th century just meant you were independently wealthy. So in a lot of cases. Um, so I think it was somebody around, that's my guess. It's probably somebody who just did this kind of one-off little poetic flowery translation. And I've just, because I've, I've tracked down a couple, which I, I thought I was onto it. I found this, there's Olive Bray, of course, but there's another woman who translated it. And I managed to get that from some university press, uh, but not the one. I thought it might've been, is she drunk or something like that? Nope because hers would have been better than that, of course. If anybody listening knows, then drop us a message or Rich a message. I'm sure you will you will make his day. Absolutely. You, well, I actually put it, I wrote this essay at the beginning of our version of, of when we republished um, some out, some out of copyright uh, translations of the Havamal. I put that as the first thing in the essay. This is the first verse I heard, you know, a decade before I even knew what Heathen <laughs> meant. I heard that and it got stuck in my mind. And, and still sticks in my mind now as something I keep coming back to, you know. But uh, eventually I, I worked out what the old Norse was and had that put on a T-shirt, but I still can't find out where that translation is from. <laughs> One day. It sounds like it's haunting you. Oh, well, yeah. But there, that's, that's, that's part of what it's all about. But uh, Well, it's quite a mystery. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's somebody who's trying to, to, to use that typical alliteration that we want to add to it when we translate it, right? And a poetic um, flair, yeah. Yeah. Um, what what do we have in the original? We have Freivats and Vera, right? So, so so there's the FF yeah. uh, alliteration happening there. Um, obviously, well being I won doesn't doesn't at, at all no. come close to what that means. <laughs> but it but it sounds great when somebody with a nice deep voice says it. You know, at the beginning of like a thrash metal album, it sounds fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we could of course there's crows and bells tolling. You can imagine the kind of atmospheric. It sounds great, but it's it's just a terrible translation, unfortunately. It's not like my kind of translation. Um, <laughs> well, that well I'd, I'd, I'd like to read the rest of it. If it's all that flowery and weird, I, I'm really intrigued just to see you know where else it goes as to what it does with some of the other classic verses. Um, Agreed. <laughs> I imagine it's probably just one line. It might just be one did. verse that somebody just, some sort of amateur had a go at. You know, it could be that. You know, that sometimes happens. Um, but that, that, that's sort of what started actually my, my journey on 
he's me really sort of looking into that and that's how I got involved with Astro UK and attended one moot and by a various sequence of circumstances ended up becoming chair of Astro UK and yeah that's so interesting that that was what sparked sparked the journey well it was something I kept coming back to this particular album because I remember really liking it and then I found it was based on a book so I read, read the book and then a bit further on and just delving further into it and just you know, it's like a lot of like, well, like people now, they, they watch the TV series Vikings. They, well, is this real? Then they look into the actual history and go, okay, well, that, that bit's rubbish, but this bit's kind of, okay, well, where's that from? And they look at the actual history and one thing leads to another. That's the kind of people, or other people might come from Lord of the Rings or something like that. They read, well, then they find out the names of the dwarves are actually mentioned, you know, in, you know, in the Vosper and, 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 and things like that. Well, that's the thing you get, you get so many people who, who almost gatekeep against those people who, who come from Vikings or Lord of the Rings or any of the popular avenues and go, oh no, that's where you've come from. And it's whereas it should be the opposite. You should welcome people however they they find this this path and then direct them in the in the right directions if things maybe aren't true or, or historically accurate, but then help them out. I can tell you for certain uh that a huge percentage of Scandinavians have come into this stuff and in whichever flavor they're interested in, in all of this, whether it's a spiritual thing or it's the reenactment stuff and all that stuff through comic books. Ah. Like, <laughs> Cause we have, we have this incredibly popular uh, a Danish comic book called in Danish Valhalla uh, in Iceland, it gets translated to Goldheimer, um, which means like the, the world of the gods. Right. Um, and this is uh, an illustrator named Peter Masson and um, a text writer named Henning Kua, um, who, you know, back in, I think it was the late 70s or early 80s, who, who, who started creating these comic books, right? And they are, you know, very close to the original stories, um, the way that they reproduced them, and, and they're really creative with them, and they make really awesome drawings and everything and pretty much everyone in Scandinavia I'm sure knows them right I was massive into comic books I I love comic books I actually made a couple of comic books that nobody really knows about I uh, I kickstarted and made a few comic books so I, I was really big into it and I always wanted to uh to make one based on kind of like the Nordic mythology I thought it would make a fascinating comic book um because it's so weird and it would come across so well in an illustration um so yeah i i think that's a really nice way i think a lot of people even through marvel and the whole thor even if that's people's avenue in and they look a little bit deeper it's it's good for whatever brings people down this path i, I think the most interesting thing i've seen recently is this i think it's a spanish duo do songs about mythology and they're all accurate, okay. but they're absolutely hilarious. They've got like they're animated. So they did one on Odin, uh, one on Loki, one on Freya, and just the way it's done is hilarious, but actually accurate. <laughs> and uh, the one on Freya, she, Freya's portrayed as like this kind of like this kind of biker chick and just the, the stuff like that. And then um, the the Loki ones hilarious, and the stuff about Odin is brilliant. It, it, it's really really good if you find the ones. Uh, I mean, uh, I can't remember the name of the guys who, who do it, but um, some of them actually have subtitles, so if you, even if you don't speak uh, Spanish, but they're absolutely hilarious. They've done like all, all the other sort of like um, the Greek and sort of um, Roman pantheon, like Ares and various other stuff. 
But if you can find particularly the one on, on Odin and Loki are just brilliant. Very, very funny, but actually accurate. So that's kind of good. Cool. <laughs> so, so just to, to follow up on the uh, the comic books, um, it looks like there are some translations of some of them available online in English and Russian, but they they are presumed to be pirated. <laughs> um, oh, okay. So they've been literally viked. Yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We don't condone buying pirated material, but... No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so Rich, we are going to talk about two of my favourite things, and that is Vikings and zombies, and hopefully going to put the two together into one topic, which I didn't even know was a real thing. I mean, Matthias probably knows some of the more famous saga stories about uh, Draug or Draugr, or anybody who's never heard of that has probably played Skyrim and has seen the undead sort of skeletal things you fight in the you know the tombs, which makes doing research into Draug online a little bit tricky because all you find is bizarre fan fiction or people have done strange little artwork regarding sort of scenes from Skyrim. Oh man, every time I try to find a a a picture, uh, like topical picture for for PowerPoint or something like that for a lecture, I get a bunch of Skyrim or Assassin's Creed or whatever, you know, <laughs> there's so oh, much. It, I mean, when there. I was doing research into werewolves, no matter how much I would filter it on, on Amazon, I would filter and filter and filter specifically ancient history, historical wolves. Every time there would be some weird shapeshifter romance book, no matter how hard I, I, I curated my search, there's always one there. Who, who's tagging their shapeshifter romance with with historical? I mean, okay. <laughs> someone good at marketing. That's who. I, I guess so. You know, I mean, fine if that's that's what you're into. But I was trying to find. You know, when you're trying to find stuff that's at least vaguely historical or at least you know research, it's uh, yeah. I never, but, uh, I never really thought of that. How how muddy the water must get when you're trying to use Google and you've got popular, you know, popular games, films, move uh, TV shows. And they all use these, especially I imagine Thor's a huge one. Things like anything, anything like that, especially with the whole Marvel thing. Or when you find there's some particular software you've never heard of that is called, you know, some particular Greek god or something like that. Mm-hmm. What and you're finding all these strange links to some particular kind of add-on for some procreate sort of like artistic software. What the hell's this? You know, so yeah. you, you find all kinds of interesting stuff. So, uh, but. Generally, what I've done, whenever I find any sort of thesis or something that's useful, I kind of save it because otherwise, odds of me finding it again, you know. I think one of the first ones I found was actually um, was Roderick Dale's uh, thesis on Berserkers, which is a really good read, huge tome. I believe he's turning it into a proper, I say proper book, like a real, like an actual um, book, uh, which I look forward mm-hmm. to reading because that's, uh, yeah. that's uh, fingers crossed for that one. So Yeah, no, that will, that will be good. He's always... He's always fun to talk to. Yeah, he's been on a couple of them. Um, I saw him on Channel 5 once, uh, doing some talking about Vikings on there, so that was kind of good. I, I, I feel like coming on here was probably the pinnacle, though. <laughs> 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 so, so, so Draugr, what, what are they? Where do they come from? Well, Please the first thing you more. have to understand is the further you go back in time, history and what have you, the difference between a werewolf a vampire, a ghost, a zombie gets a whole lot more fuzzy is the, is, is the thing. If you look at any kind of uh, mythology to do with vampires or werewolves or anything like that, they seem to be a bit of both. 
like when you talk about, I mean, you even see that in some of the later stuff, like, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, he's described as being somewhat beast-like or sometimes he's a vampire. And even in sort of, you know, the uh, Romanian mythology, that there's like werewolves that drink blood, but are they men, are they beasts? It's all a bit, the concept of strictly delineated tropes, this is a zombie, this is a vampire, this is a werewolf, this is, you know, this is a ghost, are, you know, there are no rules as to how you define these things. It's what makes a good story. Uh, and that's where it gets fuzzier. Now, I have a particular theory or hypothesis as to where the, the concept of Draga came from. But uh, if you look at the actual meaning of it, the meaning of the word, and they get the linguistics of it, you get stuff like phantom, deceiver, in the kind of um, uh, Proto-Indo-European stuff like Drukhoros uh, uh, or Druka and all those sort of strange little words like that. But the more, you know, the kind of, um, should we say, Viking era words, you get um, multiple different things that seem to reply to the same thing. So you get Hagwe, um, Yodwe. So Hagwe is like a mound dweller. Uh, Yodwe, literally earth dweller. But then there's other things like Abdraganga, which is like, again, walker. And then all of that kind of coalesces into one word, Drauga. But there's multiple different things. Mm-hmm. And there's an even another layer because you know they they love their kennings and multiple layers there. So drug might even be a way of t- it's a word of saying just a thing or a tree trunk. So people are trees and these are dead trees. And obviously you can ask an emblem and that kind of stuff. So there's that kind of play on words there. So there's like a um, human people are sometimes often re- referred to as stumps or trees. I mean, I've been I've been called stumpy before. Well, yeah, but I mean, if you, if you think about the way we use sort of idiom now, like in a you know a thousand years time, something called stumpy. Well, did he look like a tree? Did he did he wear bark? Of course, it's nonsense. <laughs> of course, he didn't. But unpicking what that linguistically people at the time would have got, you know, the, the, the certain uh, tricks of language which which wouldn't have to be explained, you know. Yeah. No, there's there's a lot in in the poetry. There's a lot of references to to trees when it comes to humans, right? Um, and and like you know, it's just, just you can use the the word asker to say warrior, um, which means the ash tree. So so yeah, that's a that's a very. I mean, I for for ages I've I've been thinking of doing something with it and like <laughs> you know digging deep into it, but obviously you never have 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 proper time to to do a real study of it but there's so much you know all your time spent on here exactly that's like <laughs> anytime you start looking at something like that you think well there won't be much trees you know and then suddenly you find more and more references and it becomes this whole thing within it you know i mean for example when i was looking into yggdrasil and, and stuff like that and i found a reference to a world tree in the i think it's a one of the books of daniel mm-hmm. you know and i was like oh wait a minute what is mm-hmm. this have I found some reference to some kind of some proto-Indo-European religion and, you know, in the kind of, which was then uh, sort of overridden by sort of Judaic faith? But actually, no, because I spoke to somebody who's, who's a sort of um, Judaic sort of history expert and said, oh, do you not know about the history of trees within Judaism? Mm-hmm. What? That's such a very, such an interesting subject. <laughs> what, what's even what's even more interesting, which I've, I haven't been able to t- dig into, they actually had rabbis or priests dedicated to the land Mm-hmm. Now they don't call them land spirits and stuff like that, but it's really close, yeah. but completely unrelated. There's this whole tradition within Judaism which is not related to anything in you know Indo-European at all. But he, but there it is, and that, that's really interesting. Whether it's just a, a, a 
like a, a function of religion. I don't, I don't know, but it's really interesting to, to hear about something that's completely unconnected, but doing something kind of similar. Yeah, and actually, to 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 be fair, there's also been a couple of scholars out there. Um, uh, I can't remember whom, but I my my suspicion is either Sophus Buke or uh, Eugen Mock, who have like suggested that the, the world tree in Nordic mythology comes from the Book of Daniel. I I wouldn't personally. Uh, at all except I mean it, it, it's a compelling story I really did think I was onto something when I found that but then mm -hmm. having dug a bit deeper into no however yeah. it is found within a lot of kind of European mythology rather than sort of like that and you find sort of stuff in um Tengrism but the mm -hmm. world tree there is to do with like the place they they hitch their horses to and that's mm -hmm. just kind of very symbolic sort of thing and and you have shamanic rituals in Siberia too that 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 involve climbing up into trees and you know, hanging in them as well. Of course, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just you know, putting that Odin out there, right there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, apparently, Tengrism is a, is is coming back. I think it's in um, the sort of far eastern sort of is it the Yakutian province? I, I could be wrong mm -hmm. there. One of the oblasts over there, and uh, um, I, I looked up a breakdown of religion and of course, of atheists, whatever. And Tengrism is definitely there as a sort of. Thing oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's happening all over Siberia. Seeing uh, people picking up uh, the old uh, beliefs is actually quite fascinating. Mm. But but getting back to sort of Draugo and just sort of I want to sort of mention some of the classic stories. Uh, obviously, Gretir's saga, which is the big one. Uh, I've got about a couple of copies of that, which has. I mean, Greta is like an awful person. I, he, he's not recorded because he's a cool person. He's just dreadful and just sort of breaks a lot of rules and kind of you know well, that's probably why he's recording he's like an anti-hero you know he's uh a sort of um and he, he i think when he goes to iceland he hears that uh, this he, he stays with his supposed friend and his friend said oh well, my father car the old has been coming out of his tomb and kind of attacking people yeah yeah he's just been buried up there with his treasure and his sword is it what treasure and a sword you say so, so he's like, oh, I'll be having some of that. And he goes in there and attacks Car the Old and takes his treasure and his sword. But then his friend says, well, technically that's mine because I'm his son. So Greta's not happy about that. But the, so that's a kind of nice little sort of compact one. But then the big the, the big classic zombie battle is when he fights the um, evil shepherd, Glamour. Mm -hmm. He was described as being kind of horrible anyway before he dies. Nobody really likes him. And he's asked to um, be a shepherd on a land that's described as haunted. But annoyingly, the saga doesn't say why or how or what it's haunted by or just, yeah, it's haunted. Yeah. It's, isn't it actually quite common, actually, that they are these Abdugango and, and whatever they're called, that they are described as like they, they sucked as human beings. And that's kind of why they sometimes, still hang around. Sometimes. <laughs> I think uh, there's one particular one who's described as so bad. And and and, and even after, you know, uh, we'll, we'll get into that. But I mean, Glamour's described as like a kind of a horrible person. And then he dies uh, and he's told uh, there's some kind of, he breaks some social taboo. He eats meat on a on a yuletide or, or something like that. And although some of them aren't Christian, they kind of like, yeah, but you know, you've got to be, keep faith and be a good guy, you know? And he's like, no, no, I don't care. I'm going to eat meat. I don't give a damn. And then he dies in a snowdrift and they can't bury him properly. So there's that kind of delay in the burial kind of thing. Right. And when he's finally buried, he comes back again and starts to attack people. And he's so evil. His mere presence makes people die or faint. 
or you know, uh, and and just just the very sight of him. But Gretier is like a skill. Yeah, but <laughs> Gretier is like I don't give a damn. Yeah, you know, I'm sure if I chop him off enough, you know, you know, I'll 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 kill him proper. And he has. So but, is this going and chopping up the body after the fact? Well, he's waiting because he keeps coming every time. You know. Uh, Every night, you know, it's a, it's a classic, almost like a horror movie trope. Every night he comes back, and you know, as soon as the sun sets, glamour comes back. So everybody's really scared, and it's like, oh, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to have Adam. I, I've got that magic sword off that guy, so I'm going to, you know, I don't care. And then he, glamour arrives, and he's kind of swollen. It's kind of being swollen, sort of like enormous somehow. Do you think that comes from the fact that the body swells after death? It's not made clear in the saga. That's the thing. It's it's kind of it's just he's just somehow swollen bigger, and kind of more like he's he's got he's been working out in the grave. I don't know. It's it's not really clear. It's described <laughs> as being just bigger and kind of scarier somehow. Oh, okay, I, I was more thinking when people die and the gases all kind of oh, well, yeah, swell I mean, up and you I mean, swell and go a bit. It, I mean, it I think it's, that's definitely that. likely, right? Because like, they they certainly wouldn't be. Unknowledgeable to that, yeah. they'd know they'd know that that happens. Oh, sure. Bodies once they, uh, but he they have a sort of battle, a really fierce battle. The guys, although he's dead, he's incredibly tough, and they're fighting and and fight. And Gretius had been a pretty much a charmed life up to this point. Every time he should have died, he's just kind of got away with it or kind of evade stuff. And and then he has this massive battle with uh, Glamour. There's this sort of key point in the battle where the the moonlight glints off the dead Glamour's eyes. And suddenly he, he kills him afterwards, but life is never the same. And like Glamour actually curses him. So the zombie speaks, curses Gretia, and his luck kind of is is gone after that. Even though he's killed a dead guy and done all this kind of stuff, it, it's never quite the same for him after that. So that's your classic sort of, you know, battle with swords. He's wrestling with this sort of, you know, this undead shepherd guy. There's so uh, many of these stories that I think people are just full of shit. There's just there's just some people back in the Viking Age that just were just, they just lied. If you think that's full of shit, then just buckle up. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> I feel like he was <laughs> he was someone who was just really lucky and fortunate, and then something something happened, and then his look changed, and people may have looked at him a little bit differently. He was like, Well, you know what's happened last night I was fucking fighting the zombie. And he cursed me. He fucking cursed me. And now that's it. So it's like, what? Come on. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's, it, it, I mean, the, the interesting thing is, though, obviously, many of the things places mentioned in Greta Saga are real places. So it's not in a set in a completely fictional landscape. It's set in a real landscape. That's how you tell a good lie. Is you put a little well, bit of truth in there. I mean, the latest sagas are, as you as you know, with that, it's called the lying sagas. Yes, that is true. Yes, uh, or sometimes <laughs> called the legendary, if you want to be. Uh, kind that of, is also, <laughs> um, but this is not one of the lying sagas, so it's, a, it's all true. So there you go. Okay, so so to just to get a little nerdy scholarly here, so we have a huge problem when it comes to the, these genres that we attribute to the sagas, right? We have um, the three big quote-unquote genres of sagas, right? Are the the king sagas, the sagas of Icelanders, and then. You know the uh, the the ones that you refer to the legendary sagas, and you can sort of roughly say legendary sagas. They take place in that time period from around maybe like 200, 300 AD until you know the beginning of the Viking Age, seven hundred ish, right? That's farther away in time from the Icelanders who are writing it in the medieval period. 
it is legendary individuals, people whose uh, 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 sort of tenure and culture uh, is 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 quite well established, um, thanks to very ancient stories like Sigurd the Dragon Slayer. Right, most of his story is fiction, but there might be some grain of history in it that has to do with you know social and historical processes that happened in the Rhineland area, somewhere close to Bavaria, somewhere close to Burgundia or or whatever in in what is now France. Um, very, very difficult to pinpoint, but we can sort of see these people, some of these individuals, they seem to have been historical individuals at some point, right? That's what we can sort of like get from that. And then we have those um, King sagas, which, you know, are there to, 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 to pretend to be proper history, right? And there, you'll find a lot of historians who are still using them as proper history, especially in Norway, because most of them are about Norwegian kings. So, so we, we want to believe it, right? <laughs> um, but, but, you know, once you start critically reading them, you, you will see that there's a lot of stuff that has been made up. <laughs> who are they writing for? Yeah. Who, who's paying them to write the story? And that's all that sort of, you Absolutely, know, yes. there's a certain yeah. audience there for, and, and, you know, that's, that's, that's always the way it goes uh, because of these, uh, I mean, you can. Uh, I, one of the events I did recently was to, with a story, with an actual storyteller, and we talked about how some of a lot of the sagas that people don't talk about are incredibly dull. Mm-hmm. Incredibly, it's all about this man inherited this. Then he went to see this guy, and this he said, "Well, yeah, you can't inherit that because of this." And then he decided how they're going to divide up. The, and he said, "Well, where's the monsters? I, I was told it was going to be dragons." And it just goes on for page after page of just this very. Uh, but it's obviously very meaningful to the people at the time. This is recording their family history and meaningful to them. So the ones that we remember are the cool ones. But uh, there are dozens of others which are to do with property rights and and land inheritance and that sort of stuff absolutely right and that's that's exactly the the sagas of icelanders right the ones that that deal with those people who are said to have come to iceland and settled and then engendered families right and the interesting thing is that we can see in some of these sagas that they're completely bogus some of them actually oh, really yeah, yeah some some of them do seem to have uh, historical background, but others have been just completely made up. Like uh, the saga of Hrakkr uh, Freyskodi, uh, this this man in the eastern part of uh, of uh, Iceland, he um, he he's disowned at one point uh, over you know a scuffle over his his holy horse dedicated to Freyr and all this stuff. Uh, that guy never existed. <laughs> <laughs> but but you yeah, tell me that Ragnar Lothbrok is uh, is not next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. But see, this is this is just you know that that says a lot about what these types of stories also are, right? They they you know you can write a saga like that um, in that time period, and people will still accept it as a meaningful story. Um, even though that the site that he is said to have owned never existed and that he, you know, seemed to have been an, another guy, really, uh, you know, and, and you know, there's a lot of things going on here. Um, I think one thing's fair to remember as well, we're talking about a time where Google didn't exist. I mean, you only have to look onto any Facebook page about Vikings and you see so much bullshit that is instantly, you could, they, they could Google it in two seconds and find out that it's not true. 
So we're in a time now where we have more information available than any other time in human history. And you can just type into Google and find out whether it's true or not. And you still get people who will argue to the death that something is, is a fact when it's not. And you can just fucking check it and they don't. So when you're talking about sagas told by people a thousand years ago, and they don't even have the luxury of Google, of course, there's going to be so much that when someone's like, yeah, I fought a zombie. And if you can't go and check it... I think it's a good point because... Uh... Because because what you're what we're dealing with we're not dealing with our legends we're listening to the legends of people then is their legends mm-hmm. so it's it's almost like trying to work out the plot of Star Wars Episode Four by reading all the fan fiction you can probably sift through enough of it to figure out what the actual story was eventually if you do a not enough analysis but you don't take the fan fiction as actual fact because that's that would be ridiculous you're going to kind of work back as to what you know what points of correlation are you trying to work back to that this is some of the, the what my rant was building up to because we we actually do know a little bit about what they thought about uh you know uh what we would call artistic creativity in terms of telling a, a historical story um we know that uh, uh people at that time appreciate it because we we see this in various contexts that it is mentioned for instance uh, somebody was telling the saga of this and that hero and he told it better than it has ever been told before right, right. and that right there tells us that hey wait a minute these people they're sitting there and they're appreciating it if 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 we are loading a bunch of draugar or, or or dragons and stuff in there because it just makes for a better story right so that also tells you that people definitely had an idea of, of what was historically correct and what was not but at the same time also what is appreciated as entertainment and 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 appropriate embellishment right i guess in a way it's kind of like the Vikings TV show or The Last Kingdom, you have to read be- read between the lines for the little bit of truth that's in there and then accept the rest for the entertainment value that it is. And the two things, the fiction and, and the facts can exist at the same time and be perfectly legitimate uh, at the same time as well. It doesn't all have to be one or the other. Yep. Some of the older stories, you know, like, like you know, the Eddas and things like that, a lot of them seem to have, they don't end properly. And people say, well, what happened then? You know, well, hang on. If Emir was the first giant, where does he come from? Well, what do you think? And this this is becomes a discussion. This fills the rest of the night or the rest of the evening. People talk about it. But later on, as people as, as civilization changes and what have you, we don't want to do that. Just tell us a cool story. We'll listen to it, and that's that. As things yeah. change, and and later on, you can see that the the storytellers are very much pitching to a certain audience. If anything pagan is found, it's evil because the heroic Christian guy is going to go and put that down. You know, and all all that kind of, you can see that as the later sagas come on, it's pitching it to a certain audience, perhaps a wealthier audience who want to hear a certain style of story, uh, and you see how that changes rather than just be something that's told to a community. It's told to perhaps not a court exactly, but a kind of a bunch of more wealthy people who want to hear a certain kind of you know that kind of approach. I think. If I was wealthy back then, you'd all be reading about sagas of me being really heroic, <laughs> killing so many different dragons, zombies, you name it. I would go down in history. Well, do you want to get into the really gruesome stuff about uh, about dragons and stuff? Absolutely. Like yes. I, yes. Okay. Well, okay, I so love horror. So. The, 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 well, this is this may be even linked to real horror because there's a fascinating... Uh, even better for me. Uh, article, True crime or, as well. Or, or sort of um, paper 
uh, by Nora Chadwick about uh, Draugr and delving deep into that. And, and it's a really interesting idea that, that it seems possible that there was a ritual form of voluntary, voluntarily being buried alive hmm. in the oldest. Um, she calls it a uh, vivisepulture. So not being forcibly thrown into a grave and buried, but people reaching a certain stage in their life. Well, I don't want to die of old age. So I'm going to take a whole bunch of food, go into the mound. Am I dead? Am I not? You don't know. You've seen me at my prime. I'll just fade away in there. Maybe he kills himself. It's some kind of ritual kind of death, uh, symbolic death. And a lot of, it seems perhaps this is perhaps the origin of this kind of concept of, well, nobody saw him die. He went at the mound. He might still be alive in there. Who knows? But equally, on the other side of that, imagine somebody goes in there, I'm going to ritually kill myself, and actually says, actually, I don't want to do that, and kind of emerges or burrows their way out from this place where they're meant to be ritually dead, half-starved, crazy, they're technically dead as far as the community is concerned and suddenly that great uncle Sonso, who was the great warrior i saw him he's kind of like all rag and bone he's like a zombie he's running around kind of killing sheep and then disappears at night you know or, or disappears during the day he only comes out at night and i think that's a possible origin of somebody voluntarily being buried alive but some of the people doing that actually changed their minds once they've done that it might have seemed a cool idea but later on because you see that in some of the, um, I think it's, oh, there's a particular reference. This is a, a reference to um, when Harold Finehair is around. There's two brothers who spend a long time building a tomb to hear that Harold Finehair is coming. Great. Okay. We're not going to fight him. And they just go into the tomb and seal it up. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is that Schrodinger's cat coat type situation? Yeah, is he dead? Is he alive? Well, yeah, that's that's sort of and but also later on you get the other stuff like the the hog brought of like the ritualistic breaking into uh, mounds to see if they are dead, or to interfere with the corpse, or sometimes interfere, or maybe not even take stuff just to maybe check or to take one thing or put one thing in, which it seems very strange to us that well, surely if you're going to break in, you're going to take all the stuff, but they didn't. They would break in, have a look interfere with the corpse in some way and then seal it up again feel like we're going down a whole different avenue now well I'm, but, and i don't mean any in any sexual way it was just like that clearly the corpse has been moved or something and we can also see that in archaeology I mean, we can see that, that that those things have have happened um uh, in different ways an awful lot of the later sagas deal with generally there's some um it sounds very tolkien-esque but there's be some kind of buried powerful king who has a cool sword well the time has come we need that sword enough to break in but he might be alive in there well i'll have to just deal i'll have to cross that bridge when i come to it you know um so i think there's um it's in i'm going to pronounce this badly Thromunda saga Glipsona, mm -hmm. uh where there's a, a witch king called thrain who's like a who's like a, a i think he's a, a sailor and a berserker he's 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 all things he's killed 420 men and he has a magical sword called mistletoe and there's all that kind of one guy has to break in and take take the magical sword and fight with Thrain and burn his body. And it's it's much more fantastical, much later stuff. But the, this concept of finding a magical sword or needing a sword um, from um, from 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 a grave is a is a big deal mm -hmm. in, in, in some of the sagas. And, and, I mean, we have it with, uh, 
Herber as well. I was right? going to come on to Herber's yeah. saga, which is super interesting for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. Before um, we move, um, yeah, is the is the the sword being called mistletoe anything to do with with Boulder? Is that is that maybe like a nod to say how powerful this sword is? I guess. Oh, it might be poisoned or, or something like that. There's some, might be some sort of implication there. I think yeah. al- almost certainly a because the, um, the, I mean, the mistletoe is an odd name for a sword if it's not. Like that's not striking fear into my heart. If Saxo does it too, right? He calls, doesn't he call? Isn't there a sword involved there in his version of Baldur's death? Which is yeah. like you know, Baldur is kind of a jerk off uh, who's trying to steal her, the lady, and then they have a whole war about it. And he's sort of like a <laughs> Baldur is a is um a, what do you call that a, a pampered kid of odin <laughs> that's really it <laughs> um i'm pretty sure that uh that that her uh, sword is also called mistletoe there or something like that I, well in herva saga which is uh i think um, maria cavilka did a really interesting breakdown of this in much more depth than i can know but uh, herva saga is a is essentially a shield maiden saga mm-hmm. this woman is decides like right well you know shit's hit the fan I'm going to have to go and kick ass. I'm going to have to become a warrior woman. Didn't want to do it, but guess, you know, the time is now. I'm going to have to get, you know, my 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 dead father's sword. And it it's meant to be a serious uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, poetic thing, but it reads almost like something from Monty Python to me because she goes to this burial land uh, and and this these specters appear and say, and they say, go back. We don't have the sword. You must go back. Anyway, the land's on fire and you shouldn't be here. And she said, well, no, that's just the hunters. That's nothing to do with that. And they said, I really need the sword. And, and the sword's called Tierfing, which is kind of cool. Uh, and But then they said, well, even if we did have the sword, it would be cursed and, you know, terrible, you know, and, and probably on fire as well. So you see, we, we totally don't have it. Said, no, seriously, I, I need the sword. Stop stop lying to me. And eventually she gets the sword. Bring it as well. Well, it is almost like that. There's verse after verse, and she's like, and they say, "Oh, you can't have it. Please just go back to your homeland, be a wife." And she's like, "Well, no, because there's stuff I need to do. Please give me the sword." And eventually, she gets it. And they said, "Well, even now you've got it. Remember, it's cursed, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's it's cursed as well. Uh, and it's meant to be something along the lines of I think if you draw it when it's not in battle, it'll kill somebody." Which yes. Is- yeah. Right. And she's like, well... I mean, that's uh, what you wanted to do when it's in battle. Well, exactly. And, and she says, like, well, big deal. I'm only going to use it to kill people. And, and she goes off and kills a whole bunch of people. Um, but the most interesting... This is a really quick sidebar, but the most interesting thing, or one of the most interesting things about the overall saga is that the gender with which she's referred to in the saga shifts once she becomes a warrior. Mm. Which is really... And that's not any kind of woke projection back in time that's literally there in the actual linguistic thing so once she becomes a warrior she's now a man and once she decides right i'm going to give that up i'm going to get married um then that's uh, sort of specifically then the gender shifts back again which is you know uh, as you say the past is weirder and more bizarre than we can possibly imagine and of course later on the, the sword kind of kills somebody else or something like that it's um i think one of her sons draws it to show his mate and of course Oh no! You should, you should. It's not in battle, so somebody somebody dies, and there's all that kind of uh, sort of interesting stuff there. I mean, Hirvos saga. I mean, there's, it's all written in verse. And it's a much later saga, but she is sort of interacting with um, ghosts. Are they kind of 
sort of uh, Draugr, it's not kind of clear that the specters of, of her dead ancestors sort of pop up and kind of give us some grief about, why do you want to be a shield maiden? Because I've got to go kill this guy. Can you not just be a wife? No, I've got to go kill this guy. And it's just this endless conversation with mm-hmm. where they go on. I mean, that along with the, the shift in gender, do you think that leans into more backing up the, the warriors were particularly male and it was very unlikely or unusual for, for a female? Well, there up. is a, a, a theory about this. I think it's Carol Clulo. Do you know the one I mean, uh, Matthias? Where there's a particular uh, hypothesis, I won't say a theory, it's a hypothesis that in that era that there was only one gender that was male and everything else was less. So whether you were a slave, whether you're a woman, whether you were anything else, that was just other. Male was the main thing and everything else was less. Um, So there's this particular academic paper called Regardless of Sex. So it's almost impossible to project back our ideas of sex and gender back then because it was so different culturally and ethnically and all these different sort of complexities it's weirder than we can sort of even sort of get our head around because uh, so this idea that oh you're a warrior well kill you're a man now well mm. I'm, I'm i'm not no 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 you're a man now you're a warrior because only men are warriors all right and which, <laughs> well yeah that that's that that's kind i mean that's a very sort of trite sort of silly way of saying it but that's kind of what what this sort of um article is arguing for uh, and that's this kind of backs that up in a kind of very uh, strange way um, mm-hmm. but but also with zombies so you know <laughs> <laughs> zombies ghosts um uh, we haven't got to the weirdest ones yet <laughs> <laughs> let's get to the weird ones <laughs> oh i just wanted to get your opinion on the whole kind of swapping gender because i've never heard that that before it kind of oh, i think I, I think the whole uh, thing about gender and stuff is is so complex because uh what gender meant then was so different it's 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 impossible to almost project how our society is now to then because in like for example we know very much that it was fine to be gay as long as you were the top and as long as you got married and have children which mm-hmm. what that, that that makes no sense but no. it made perfect, <laughs> made perfect sense to them at the time well, yeah. So, I mean, I've highlighted this before. First of all, we the saga literature is what we have as the you know the, the quote unquote best uh, sources to to inform us on what people might have thought you know about all these things, and that's really bad because they're written in Iceland, and Iceland is its own kind of society. Um, we don't we we can't really transfer the Icelandic situation onto mainland Scandinavia. Um, we can't really expect that the 13th century attitude is is uh, is appropriate for the 9th century attitude. Like that's you know just think about how how different things are now compared to the 1500s, right? So so there's there's like a lot of like source problems when it comes to talking about this subject. But going on from there, um, there's also you know we have to take into consideration when we talk about all of this that nowadays we have um we have social not nowadays it has always been there uh, but we have these social expectations when it comes to gender that you know having a certain gender allows for uh, open stores right um and um and uh, um, um and 
allows for doing certain things at certain times and so on. But but we don't exactly know how that worked for those people back then, right? Um, just like we we can we can look at the early twentieth century and we can see that people playing around with gender then, right? also allowed for them to do other things than they uh, originally were otherwise permitted to do, right? Um, so so, so there's, there's, like, uh, there's, of course, a, a I think, like foundational, phenomenological aspect to all of this that transcends time, like that humans probably in some way or, or other deal with these ideas and concepts and the physical reality of it as well. Uh, similarly, across time, because cognitively, again, we're not that different now that we from, from those people who existed 2000 years ago, right? But um, obviously, then you have a culture that, that allows for more or less of uh, of of that um, uh, what you could call creativity, you know, in terms of uh, identification. What we're seeing right now, right, is is a cultural push for uh, maximum um, uh, variety in expression. The whole Rubik's cube of humanity. The Rubik's cube, yes. <laughs> and, and I don't mean that in a pejorative. I mean that in a great way. Because yeah, know, yeah. The, <laughs> uh, I think that 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 can be positive, and I've seen that in various heathen communities as well, uh, where you get a sort of hugely diverse age, gender expression, or, or however, and that has been fantastic to see that in, in real time. In just a sort of few years, I've been involved uh, with with heathenry, and it, it's been great to see that. You know, because obviously people delving into the theological aspects of it and building new traditions out of that and stuff. And, and that's been fascinating to sort of literally witness and see that happening in real time. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's really interesting. And then, you know, I think you can draw some analogies on like how things work today compared to how they might have functioned back then. For instance, an urban environment usually allows for more expressions, right? That 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 that's sort of like a standard rule you could perhaps apply, um, because an urban environment has more people, right? Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that that it's legal or uh, that that you know good society isn't frowning upon it or something like that. But it but it it is there's the capacity for that to be present, right? So when we when we go back to the Viking Age and we look at like, what does Scandinavia look like, for instance, well, there are some urban environments. Um, there's, there's you know, several places in the Danish area, um, some places in the Eastern Swedish area, some places in the Southern Nor Norwegian area, right? Where you can perhaps expect that there is more uh, diversity, right? Um, as opposed to the countryside and as opposed to also a place like Iceland that does not have any urban uh, spaces at all. And, and therefore very little chance for people to interact in, in, in you know, a multitude of new ways, right? Um, so, so, so that's something to take into consideration, especially when we then look at the Icelandic sources that are incredibly homophobic, right? And be like, well, this might be an expression of Icelandic culture because we we can't really know how much uh, that was present in the same way in in the the rest of it. It was essentially frontier culture. It was people who who had to who either wanted to leave or had to leave. 
for various reasons, uh, whether they were being forced out or whether they had to go because nobody liked them or whatever, uh, or, or they just wanted to leave. So the the reasons for them leaving is less is often not always recorded. They, but they're people who were seeking a better life in in, in some respect. And it's the same way you see like frontier culture in America is very different to how it probably would have been in England, for example, where the people had come from and how people dealt with things would have been very different. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's, it, it, I think you've seen some of the stuff that people have done, like Neil Price has done with archaeology and kind of trying to work back as, well, this is a thing we found. This is what we found in the sagas. Can we find a route that connects those two different things? Sometimes you can't. There is no... There's no sources. Nothing says what this object is, and, and, and trying to discern why somebody might have been trapped this way or dressed a certain way. Uh, and I think that's why, uh, which is really interesting, because you think, well, surely at this point we know everything there is to know about that period. We don't, because there's further analysis and DNA analysis and all kinds of other stuff, and better a sort of uh, anal text textual analysis, as you're probably well aware of, um, kind of teases more out. And uh, we can see or, or re reassess previous sort of work, and it's 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 endlessly fascinating. Really, mm -hmm. it really is. And it, actually, I like that you you draw do that parallel between Iceland and and America in terms of frontier societies, because that uh, actually brings in a new uh, aspect of of psychology too. What you typically see in a lot of frontier societies is. Um, more flexibility when it comes to um uh, cultural expressions right so that makes it interesting that then that if 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 the icelanders are like oh no uh, we're totally norwegian and we definitely don't like homosexuals right what is that then well uh, you could compare that perhaps a little bit to the strong puritan culture that you get in the u.s which uh europeans have generally shedded a little more uh, um, over the centuries, um, probably as a reaction towards the the opportunism uh, that the atmosphere of opportunism that has otherwise existed in in, in America as a frontier society. Mateus, do you think that a different opinion would depend on who's in charge as well? So let's say you get the people who go to Iceland, and you just get one dickhead who ends up being in charge, and he's like. I don't like gay people. But then because he's kind of in charge, it trickles down. Um, and whereas, you know, you could have Sweden, Norway, Denmark in their different sort of localities because you, it's not a global community. Everyone, even though they're technically maybe the same country or the same landmass, it still differs massively depending on where you are. So if you could just have an earl or whoever rules your little area and he's like, yeah, do what you want. I don't really care. Like, do you think you get that within sort of Scandinavia itself? I think so, yeah. I think, I mean, so the idea of dogmatic consistency that we see in Christianity seems to come with Christianity, right? So so once once Harold Bluetooth has, has converted to Christianity in the, in the 950s, late 50s and early 60s, whenever that happened in Denmark, right? Then he starts setting a standard for 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 how these things should be right, and of course uh, Christianity as as a religion has a lot of opinions on the subject of gender. Right, we don't know if they had the same kind of opinions or differing opinions, or they cared that much in pre-Christian context 
but I mean, we can't assume either or. We can we can assume that they could have been just as much um, aware and intent on 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 uh, keeping people in a, uh, in in certain categories, or they they could have not cared, right? And it could very much have come down to it, whichever ruler. There's not a single reference, either negative or positive, in either the sagas or Christians or anything, anywhere, to gay women. Mm-hmm. Nowhere. Mm-hmm. Not a one. Yeah. Now, does this mean there were no gay women in Scandinavia? Probably not. No. <laughs> but because people, because 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 people are people. Uh, but uh, there's literally no mention anywhere. So there's no conclusion we can draw from that. Uh, was it so common as people just didn't mention it because it was just irrelevant because women were less than men. So who, who cares what they do? Or was it completely forbidden and completely sort of, you know, uh, uh, even worse than sort of um, uh, men having sex with each other? We just don't know. So there's huge blank areas where literally it's just a question mark. Yeah. Nothing known. Yeah. And one thing that we can see that is always, a huge driving factor in trying to, from some kind of like central uh, central context, trying to regulate other people's uh, gender expression and their sexualities and all that stuff has always been property. That's a main concern here, right? So, so if you have a lot of property that you're worrying about, then you also worry about what your children, for instance, are doing with the genitals. Um, but people who don't have any property, do we know if anybody cared about them? Like, what do they, did anybody care about what the slaves were doing, right? You know, or what people were doing with the slaves? You but know? also think that even in my lifetime, the, the her opinions on homosexuality has changed massively, especially when it comes to the difference between, like, gay men and gay women. Like, when I was a kid, even... You know, maybe you're talking 25 years ago. It was see, it was amongst a lot of people that I knew, particularly probably like older males. It was seen much more negative to be a gay man than to be a gay woman. Like lesbians were much more accepted. You saw it, kind of, especially in like a a porn scenario. That was very common, more accepted. But two men was like forbidden. That was. And that's unfortunately the opinion that people had, and that's just in my lifetime that I've seen seen that change. Do you think that that could maybe play a part? That- it's just impossible. We cannot essentially. It's the the Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's the argument from ignorance. We just do not know. We just there's no way we could. There's nothing in the sources to say one way or the other. We just because there's literally in terms of gay women, there is just a blank. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. We have nothing. There's nothing in even as far as I'm aware in Anglo-Saxon literature. There's just nothing. Yeah. So there's just nothing to even say. Well, ah, this is one little hint here. No, I think before you get any reference to it, I think you're way into the kind of early Renaissance kind of, you know, or there's ancient Greece, early Renaissance, and just nothing in between. Yeah. No, it's true. And and, and uh, yeah. So, so since we lack proper, you know, source material for all of this, that's why I'm making the argument, we should simply go to looking at these more phenomenological aspects of, of how does society function? Where do we see societies that, you know, have strong attitudes or less strong attitudes or what kinds of, you know, comparatively, what kinds of, uh, uh, of, of, of cultural ways exist out there to handling these things. We can look at, for instance, what 
we see in Native American context with uh, um, multiple genders, uh, two spirits. Um, we could look at uh, what happens in Southeast Asia in terms of uh, uh, what social standing do um, men who cross over have in, in those societies. Um, are there ancient traditions, for instance, as there are in India, uh, for uh, for men who who dress as women, and and so on and so on and so on. But one thing that we usually see is that the people who challenge those conform gender roles, they usually find themselves on the periphery of society. They might be accepted, um, but they're peripheral in one way or another. And at least that's that's what I sort of like can say based on my. You know, limited understanding of the subject because <laughs> I'm not an expert on it. If people want to dig deep into that sort of uh, phenomenological sort of stuff, there's a couple of uh, big essays. I think there's um, Sammy Reinenen, I think is the, is the name. We wrote a, a, a text called Queer Vikings. Mm-hmm. If you want to read a, a sort of a, a deep dive into that, there's a couple of other sort of texts out there. And that's a very serious, it's not a kind of trying to project it's a very serious sort of uh, sort of analysis of, of 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 what it meant in those sort of uh, contexts um I, I wanted to um perhaps drag it back to drauga yeah absolutely <laughs> so before, before we run out of time i want to hear more uh, yeah yeah well, well I, I wanted to mention i wanted to mention uh, uh, the the concept of the um conversion to christianity and how that plays into drauga uh, because um, there's Eric the Raid saga, which has all kinds of stuff happens because obviously that's in Greenland and all, all kinds of stuff happens there. And there's there's a it's described as a plague there. And this is at a point where some people are convicted to Christianity, some people aren't, and there's this kind of bit of a tension going on. People trying to get along in this kind of pretty grim land that's filled with mosquitoes and kind of horrible, but. <laughs> Uh, well, hey, dude, that's my homeland. Green, <laughs> Greenland, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, it was, um, but um, it was this plague, uh, and this woman, Sigrid, dies uh, after seeing this horrible vision of a host of undead, and she dies, and the coven's prepared while the men are out fishing, and then when the men come back from fishing, uh, uh, I think it's a guy called Thorsten, says, yeah, about her being dead, she got out of her kind of coffin and tried to get into bed with me. Uh, <laughs> not happy about that, so I stabbed her with a pole axe. Um, any suggestions, guys? <laughs> so there's this, and it's and it's written as very, very sort of uh, laconic way. Yes, and then she died, and then she got up again and tried to get in, back into bed with her husband. So he killed her. <laughs> and there's a, no more detail than that. <laughs> uh, and, but then the weird bit is, after that, then he kills it kills her again. He Thorsten then dies. He's a Christian. His wife isn't, I think. And then he comes back from the dead as a zombie, and starts to preach Christianity. It's like, oh, the reason we're all coming back as zombies because we haven't embraced Christ. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you yeah. imagine people going like, really? <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's in the saga. It's just kind of very odd, kind of, and it's it's often the way that these things are written in such a weird laconic style. It's um, it's supposed um, to be the opposite. Like it's supposed yeah, I know. To, you embrace Christ and then you can come back after death, right? <laughs> you know, it's like I'm a zombie. Well, why are you going to be a zombie? Oh, because you're not Christians. What? <laughs> uh, but that's that's not the only Christian zombie, of course. We have in uh, in our bigger saga where so, this Christian lady dies and her family. I don't think all her family are Christians, but she particularly wants to be buried in a Christian graveyard. And they're like, oh, okay. 
we have how far away is it okay right so the it's what she wanted okay well well and, and they kind of take her a really long way her, her corpse and they stop at another household and big social faux pas the family they stay with give them no food and no drink really bad hosts big big social faux pas in iceland in this era so they kind of really pissed off well, you know we've come all this way and all right okay well we'll head off in the morning see what's what during the night they hear some noise and lo and behold the dead christian lady has got up naked and she's preparing a meal for the family this dead naked christian lady cooking some stuff making some buns or you know making a stew or whatever she's doing uh, well and then which they then eat and then she dies all goes back in the coffin and they go and bury her. <laughs> it's this very odd little tale. One uh, of them later... has got up in the night, made made food, eaten all the pe- people's food, and they've come down in the morning and gone, what the fuck's happened here? Oh, no, no, because, because it's in the saga where they get up and say, what's all this noise? And they see the, the dead naked Christian lady kind of Chopping vegetables, yeah, and kind of. Is that the host that see her, or is it the, her family that see her? Because I feel like it's her family. It's her family. Yeah, her family have made the food. That's what's happened. And then the hosts <laughs> have come in the next day and gone, "What the fuck's happened here?" And they've all gone, "You know what? The dead lady did it. Want <laughs> us. The dead lady got up, made us food, and we just." You were such bad hosts that you know. Uh, uh, yeah, I feel like I, everybody's I, just I, blaming shit on dead people. <laughs> they, they're doing uh, well, stuff. I mean, right about well, it. <laughs> Dead person, in the yeah. same saga though you get um uh, the, the 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 dead fisherman or the or the dead sailors uh which is uh Thurio wooden Woodenleg and his undead company who all drown at sea and come back all dripping with water and kind of seaweed and kind of but as this is Iceland people propose a legal solution they say, well technically as you're undead your your son can't inherit so technically i'm afraid you'll have to go back to being dead and he goes fair enough you've made a good legal argument and off he goes and the next guy comes for and, and and they have this long i would say tedious but it's it's, it's involved legal discussion as well technically as an undead person this will prevent your family from inheriting and it will cause a number of issues in, in the legal process and the whole thing will be very embarrassing and can you please just die properly and he goes fair enough you've made a good point and, and each sailor Who's who's dead, dripping with seaweed, and all kind of zombie? They all go, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I take your point and go back to being dead. I mean, at least they're polite about it. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's a Yule feast. It's Christmas. You've ruined Christmas dinner. You've come in all dead and dripping with seaweed. Honestly, how rude can you be? This is just, you know, <laughs> it's a it's a, it's fantastic. Isn't this, isn't that situation referred to as a doorway trial or something like that? Something well, there's also a kind of a, a seal that breaks through the floor as some kind of symbolic act as well. It's kind of yes, right, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. There's, there's, um, I mean, the, the locations mentioned in it are also real places, but were they on dead sailors? Probably not. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, but the interesting thing is, uh, there's a there's another story which I failed to track down about an undead uh, uh, sailor in a rowing boat which I thought was from some saga. And a friend of mine, uh, Dan Kuldas, has written a book called Heathen in the Sea recently, and he couldn't track it down. Eventually, I found the reference. It's not from a saga. It's from a short story where a family are sailing, and there's this kind of undead guy in a rowing boat pursuing them and pursuing them and pursuing them. And Oh, right. Yeah. It's a 19th century kind of... It's been retold many times. 
And of course, like all classic horror movies, the family all dies, but one young girl survives. It's you know, it's, it's that that trope is that old, you know. And eventually, there's just a wreck of a boat which just manages to coast at the sea, and there's one person just manages to escape from this evil rowing boat zombie guy. <laughs> well, as now that we are in the 19th century, we might uh, just uh, dip into some of the folklore material that we have too, right? I mean, particularly remember one uh, um, folktale, Norwegian folktale about the battle between the sea drogar and the land drogar. So they they meet at some on some bridge and then they they fight it all out <laughs> while this guy is like walking home at night. It's always you know some pissed. dude who pissed. he's pissed. Yeah, he's pissed exactly. And um, oh, the uh, the other like very standard one is the is the one where you're like walking past a burial mound at night, right, or riding past it, and then 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 somebody is you know, some 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 voice is like, hey, I got a drinking horn full of mead over here you want some and then you better you know just start running because <laughs> because <laughs> because the content is poisonous and you know these, these some, stories some... are all men that have stayed at the pub too long and they've got home and the wife's like where the fuck have you been like you won't believe it on the bridge they were fucking two these zombies fighting someone from the sea someone from the land they're they're just all liars. They're all <laughs> liars, and all these stories just got passed down from them, just covering their own ass. You're you're, you're so cynical. <laughs> On the subject of absolutely wild stories, do you want to get into Svafdela saga? Yes, there's some wild stuff happens in this one. Uh, uh, it's essentially uh, it's a kind of a sad story in some ways because it's this woman who's forcibly married off to the thrall of the hero. The thrall says the, the hero says, "Oh well, now we've defeated the bad guys." Um, what would you like? I want that really fit woman. Well, you, you, you understand I have to give you anything. Is there anything else you want? Yeah, I want her. So, and she's married off to three different dreadful men all the way through it. And it's never accounted what she thinks about it, but it's obviously not fun for her. It's kind of kind of dreadful. Um, one of the guys she's married off to is a guy called Klaufi, who is a berserker and and also horrible. So double whammy there. And he's in the, uh, and he supposedly killed a man or nearly killed a man at the age of ten, like any good berserker. Uh, and he's married off. The, the poem is called um, Ingvild, and she's married off to various people. She's she, she's married off to him by 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 tri- she's tricked into marrying him, and it's it's not very good. And eventually, she comes up with a plan to get rid of Clouffy. Uh, uh, she says, "You know, there's a dead cow about a mile away." I'd be so grateful if, if if a man who was married to me went and got it. She caresses him a bit. Berserker rage, as it's called in the saga, takes him over and he runs the whole way, picks up this massive dead cow, runs all the way back. She caresses him again, kind of, he loses his kind of berserkerness. The things that men sword. do for the caress of a good woman, eh? Well, he drops the cow, drops his sword and... Of course, it wasn't a cow. It was her two brothers hiding inside the cow, obviously, who pop out. And there's a great line in the sword which where she says, well, whoever wants to use the sword could use it right now. So they <laughs> stab Clouffy. Now he's no longer in his berserker form. Dump him in the barn. Good job. She's thrilled to bits. This horrible guy she's been married to is dead. Fantastic. Uh, and off they go. Then he gets up again dead and tries to get into bed with her and she's like 
can you come and kill him again, please? <laughs> <laughs> so they come and cut his head off to be really, really sure. Okay. That's not the end of the story, because Cleofie's badass. Uh, the night after his second death, he appears as a ghost on top of a roof near his cousin's house and says, somebody killed me. If you follow my ghost, I'll show you who it was. Carrying his head, literally by the hair. So, and his mate says, oh, well, f- fantastic. Off they go. And they go to kind of surrounding her house, uh, Ingvild's house, and kind of, he's using his head by the hair as a weapon, kind of battering on the door with it, which is absolutely wild. Uh, and, and all this kind of stuff. And eventually they they are got rid of, but he, he still speaks as this kind of dead sort of thing. And he says something in the saga, it's like, I, I intend to bring many to their graves this night, you know, kind of classic sort of uh, saga sort of thing. And eventually uh, he, he uses disconnected head and eventually this doesn't quite work out and um, he goes back to his tomb. But there's this other final line in the saga where he starts marauding from his tomb again. And his cousin said, yeah, this is, this is, this is a bit much now, Clifey. <laughs> We've had enough now. So they take his body out and burn it on a stone, which cracks. Then they dump the ashes into the sea, just to be certain. As one does. <laughs> <laughs> you know, is he dead? Well, you know, we'll put it in the sea. You know, there's, there's, there's another um, saga about a, a, a drug called Hraf. And it said the Hraf had been, and this is brilliantly laconic statement uh, where they, he, they chopped his head off, burned his body and threw the ashes into the sea. And after that, no one had any more trouble with Hraf. Yeah, it's this lovely sort of. He's gone. I mean, how how many of these do you think are people that weren't actually dead? I think an awful lot of them weren't people or people who thought they were dead or maybe very ill. So I think there's an awful lot of that involved, or people kind of symbolically or ritually dying. Kind of, Mm -hmm. I am now dead. So if I'm you know, I mean, yeah, sure, there was cool ghost stories, and there's that as well, feeding into this as well, certainly. And people love a good ghost story with monsters, people coming back to the dead, that, that's always cool. But I think in addition to that, you're also getting people who are technically, I am now a dead person, I shall retreat from society. I mean, you see it now, we're with people having living wakes and stuff like that, and I am now officially dead, don't phone me or text me. I, 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 I'm going to be ill now, and I don't really want to interact. I've had my fun with my friends. You know, you, uh, as, as a guy I know who, who had a, a living wake, he wanted to go down the pub with his friends one last time, do what he could normally do, and after that, he was going to withdraw from society. And you can see people do that in a kind of, you know, the, there was the fear, and you see it in fiction as well, but the concept of nobody wants the straw death, or the die as an old man. You want to die in battle, something victorious, something cool. You want a cool death. Imagine being really ill and then they, they take you to put you in this mound and then you get better and you think everyone's going to be really happy to see you. And then the, the, you just come in and they're like, no, piss off, go back go back to your mound. Well, the people in the mound were, were doing it voluntarily. They, it was their idea. That no one was forced. That's the whole point. No one was pushed or buried against their will. This was an idea that people had. It's interesting to see how there is definitely a spiritual aspect to this as well. Um, with the case of Bardor, Snaifel's house, who, you know, he, he 
the saga goes. And at some point, he got you know tired of people, <laughs> got kind of mean, and then then he just like walked up to 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 live under or inside the glacier of 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 Snifelessness. and that's why he's called Snifeless Aus, which means you know the god of Snifek. So I mean, come Monday morning when I read some emails, I want to do that sometimes. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm done with with this. But I mean, you do see there's there's a I, I think it is that in that saga where there's somebody who's still living in the mound or in a kind of a ritually dead state, perhaps technically alive, but they're kind of they've withdrawn from society. They don't want to interact. They just want to sort of sit and meditate, pray. I mean, it's impossible to know what they were after, but it was that sort of concept of just withdrawing from society. I mean, Nora Chadwick talks about it being as like a, she draws parallels with the kind of sooty idea in India. And I think that's a bit tenuous, really. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think this idea of, I want people to remember me as the cool guy. And I just, I want to withdraw and just remember me that way. I'm going to, if I have to get old and die, I'm going to do that as a dead man. You know, that, it's very tragic to talk about uh, what's called um, irrational burrowing. In people who are lost in forests, completely disoriented, and they get cold and get suffer hypothermia, people suffering severe hypothermia actually feel too hot. Mm. So they take their clothes off, which is the worst thing you could possibly do if you're suffering from hypothermia. And one of the things that this is known by certain sort of people who found bodies that people try to burrow into the ground or something. Mm-hmm. How old is that? Is that kind of like some deep primal you know, sort of limbic cortex kind of thing. It's, it's very tragic and sad, but it is a thing that that has been observed in, in a number of cases. Uh, but if you can imagine that combined with a sort of a ritualistic thing of somebody voluntarily withdrawing from society, I am now dead to society. Uh, but maybe they regret that and they kind of get hungry and go crazy or whatever, that this hasn't worked or they haven't died or they, whatever whatever's happened to them and they emerge from that and go crazy mm-hmm. that's gonna be terrifying to the people who are as far as they're concerned that guy's dead right <laughs> he's running around killing sheep what the hell i thought you know we we buried him three years ago what, what do you you know yeah so that that sort of concept is is that that is going to be terrifying yeah there's definitely examples of how you know the dead have had an afterlife right in in the burial mounds um you know, a, a really fascinating concept is the chamber graves in, in, in the Viking age, right? Which, which, you know, in some cases are built like little houses and there's like a little, there's a, there's a little chair and, you know, people have obviously gone in and hung out with whomever was buried. Yeah, yeah. In there, right? But it wasn't um, seen as being horrible or grotesque. It was seen as no. being a, a normal thing to do. It wasn't seen as being, oh, you're being kind of sick, hanging out with dead bodies. This was, no, this is fine. This is my ancestors. I love these guys. You know, yeah, was, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's a different attitude on death, yeah. isn't it, than we have today? We have a very, I think it's quite a modern attitude where we're afraid of it. Where I don't think that's always been the uh, been been the case. Mm-hmm. Perfect. We should we should probably wrap wrap this up because we have our recording of Allsunga Saga after this. Yeah. So we it's going to be a, a late one. Rich, thank you very much for joining us. This was fun. We haven't even got to werewolves. So. We will. You can come back and we'll talk about werewolves. Absolutely. We should have really, 
We should really have timed this around Halloween if we were smart. Oh, if you want to, I'm happy to come back and talk about werewolves and and the wolf cults and stuff like that. There's always more to talk about there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Where can people find you? Uh, If you want to look up uh, Astro UK, uh, just Google that. You'll find us on uh, Facebook and uh, our website. And we have our publications on Amazon and so on and so on. Um, So um, in September, we'll be raising a god post to odin oh so, cool. yeah a nine foot god post first one nice. in a very very long time i think in the in england uh so i'll be doing that and consecrating that so looking forward to that and um some friends of mine have been playing some very very intricate rituals for that all manner of chanting and stuff so really looking forward to that um hopefully be some fo- photographs and things around that as well awesome, awesome. yeah sounds good fun Oh, we're hanging out too much, Mateus. We just said the same word at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Mateus, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram for now. <laughs> you need to come That's back it. to Facebook. We no, I did a, not. We just had a thousand people in our Facebook group. That is wonderful. I'm so happy One to hear that you're thousand. having a great community over there. Uh, I will not be joining it. I I have uh, I've gone into the burial mound uh, when it comes to Facebook. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah so if you if you enjoy the show please leave the five star rating a positive review uh, like i just said we're going to be recording a story time episode after this so every week we record a bonus show after the main episode whether it's we, we basically we alternate weeks one week we'll do the vikings watch along where we watch an episode of the vikings and me and Mateus sit down and watch it and give you our thoughts Mateus lets you know what's true and then the other week we do a story time where we read through one of the sagas and Mateus lovingly reads it. I get to listen. Um, and we, you know, we read through the saga, we talk about it. This is the second part of the Volsunga saga. And um, yeah, so basically you get a bonus show every week if you support us on Patreon. Um, you can also follow us on Nordic Mythology Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, the website nordicmythologypodcast.com, which now I have ownership back of technically. So, you know, if you want to get pick up a t-shirt, you can grab one and it will actually get to you now. And I think I think that's everything. I think it's probably something I've missed, but the list gets longer every week. There we go. Thank you very much. <laughs>